And let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. In the mid-1930s, in a community near Charlotte, North Carolina, an event of great significance took place and was not covered by any newspapers. The churches in that community decided to hold a community revival. But there were a few preachers in the area who spoke out against it. They felt that the guest evangelist was deficient in education and lacking in sophistication. But there was a Presbyterian Sunday school teacher who disagreed with those preachers. And he advised his high school students to attend. And so one of them, the lanky teenage son of a dairy farmer, attended that revival and was soundly converted and called to preach. His name was Billy Graham. And through him, God ignited a worldwide revival that reached its zenith in the 1950s and 1960s. Millions of people were brought to Christ through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Now, 50 years later, America is in desperate need of another revival. In two days, we will celebrate the 241st birthday of America. And by the grace of God, we've come through a lot of crises in that almost two and a half centuries. But huge challenges remain. The first 17 years of the 21st century have been hard on America. It began with 9-11 a terrifying attack when 3,000 of our citizens were murdered by airborne Islamic terrorists. And ever since then, every year or so, more terrorist attacks have followed from Boston to San Bernardino to Orlando, threatening and terrifying our people. On the economic front, we have come through a long and a difficult recession, and we're only now beginning to come out of it. We've run up a national debt of almost $20 trillion because we've been using our children and grandchildren's credit cards without their permission. And there's no politician, Democrat or Republican, who has offered a realistic plan for paying off our debt. Our civic discourse has become toxic, poisonous. Differences of opinion are not tolerated on many college campuses. Political differences have degenerated into hatred, inspiring some unbalanced people like the gunman in Alexandria, Virginia, who on June 14 tried to kill 
his political opponents. For many years, our urban areas have suffered from drug addiction, first to crack cocaine, then to heroin. But now an even more deadly opioid crisis is sweeping the country. America's churches have had their problems too. Virtually all of the mainline denominations are declining in membership and in worship attendance. Many churches in America have drifted away from biblical authority and their central mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, in light of all these troubles that America has encountered in the first 17 years of this century, a lot of thoughtful people are asking, where is God in all this? Some are wondering, is it vain that we plead for God to bless America? Our scripture lesson for today reveals that God's people in ancient Israel asked the same questions, and they had suffered a far worse nightmare than has America because of their disobedience to God, he had allowed a foreign nation to conquer them, Babylon, in 587 B.C. The best of their citizens were hauled off into exile. But there in that foreign country, humiliated and disgraced, broken, these Israelites fell on their knees and repented. God, in his mercy, raised up a pagan king named Cyrus, who allowed them to return home to Jerusalem. And there, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. And then their priest and prophet Ezra taught them a great lesson about God's covenant with the nation. Ezra pulled out historical records from 400 years earlier under the reign of King Solomon. And at that time, God had made a covenant with the nation. According to the covenant, if the people were faithful to God and kept his laws, God would bless them. But if the people were unfaithful to God and broke his laws, he would punish them. But then, according to the covenant, if then they repented, God would be merciful and would bring forgiveness and hope for the future. Ezra applied that lesson to his own people, reminding them that Solomon's covenant was still in force. In any nation where true repentance follows sin, God's grace is always available to repair the damage and offer the nation a new start. If Ezra could speak with us today, I think he would say, America, take an honest look at your moral and spiritual condition and then repent if God can find a faithful minority within a nation, that minority can be the raw material God uses to bless the entire nation. The recipe for national revival is declared in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Notice this recipe for national revival involves our responsibility and God's response. Let's look first at our responsibility. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Notice the challenge is not to the entire nation. It's directed to my people who are called by my name. At the time God introduced this covenant with King Solomon, the king did not know God as fully as we do. 800 years after King Solomon, God revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ and later on the day of Pentecost in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we know God in the completeness of his revelation as the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Therefore, we the church are indeed the people called by God's name. We are also called here to humble ourselves. We must admit that we're part of America's problem. And we are not smart enough, we're not rich enough, and we're not powerful enough to solve America's problems. Furthermore, we are called to seek God's face in prayer, to become prayer warriors. Let me ask you a personal question, calling for an honest answer. I want you to think about yesterday, Saturday, July 1. How many times did you pray yesterday? Can you remember a single instance? St. Paul called us to pray continually. That does not mean long prayers on our knees. Indeed, Jesus criticized the Pharisees because of the vain repetition in their prayers, thinking that the more words they said, the more God would hear. No, that's not the way prayer works, Jesus taught us. Short prayers can be wonderful and powerful. A prayer before every significant decision. A prayer before every meeting with another person. Prayers with your eyes wide open. Even waiting for a red light to change. Some Christians spend a lot, spend a lot of time deploring all that's going on in America. And sometimes we clergy do also. Saw a cartoon somewhere of a man greeting a pastor after a worship service, and he said, nice deploring, Reverend, nice deploring. Well, sometimes it's necessary to deplore evil around us. But deploring by itself changes nothing. But prayer changes lots of things. Praying beats deploring every time. Well, that brings us to the hardest part of our responsibility, according to the Bible, for revival in America. We are to turn from our wicked ways. Wicked, of course, refers to words and deeds that are evil. As much as we love America, and we do, we must confess our long list of failings. We are the foremost producer of pornography in the entire world. We are the primary consumer of illegal drugs in the entire world. Hollywood cannot make a movie hardly ever without profaning God's holy name. And we Christians support that sin by buying tickets. The third commandment says, 
you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And a moment ago in the Lord's Prayer, we prayed, hallowed be thy name. To hallow means to honor as holy. Many Hollywood producers despise religion because they see religion as their main opposition in their attempts to paganize our culture. But those Hollywood producers love money even more than they hate religion. And if their products don't sell, if their products are not profitable, they will cease making them. Therefore, Hollywood and the American culture are co-conspirators in the misuse of God's holy name. And now the sin of abortion. Even though the numbers of abortions have decreased somewhat in the last few years, we are still destroying almost one million little unborn babies every year. And the primary reasons given for destroying those babies, the number one reason is, I can't afford this baby. And the, the other big reason is, the baby would be inconvenient. Approximately one-third of all those abortions are performed by Planned Parenthood. Furthermore, there is a well-organized attempt by American secularists to banish religion from the public sector. These people don't want freedom of religion. They want freedom from religion. Let me give you an example. There is a high school football coach out in Bremerton, Washington, named Joe Kennedy. For the past few years, it has been his practice after ball games to go to the 50-yard line, bow his head, and pray silently for 30 seconds. His players began to join him. Fans began to join him. The school district did not like that. They ordered him to stop. He would not. They gave him a command that he was not to do anything, quote, visibly religious. He did not stop. He was fired. I read in the Constitution a guarantee of the free exercise of religion. I don't read that it excludes football coaches. I don't read that I'm guaranteed free exercise of religion as long as I don't do anything visibly religious. The case of Coach Kennedy is being litigated in the courts. The Roman Catholic Little Sisters of the Poor are threatened by government if they refuse to provide products for their employees that are abortion-related. Florists and caterers are fined and threatened with jail if they refuse to participate in events that are morally offensive to them. If a student in a public high school wants to write a term paper on prostitution or witchcraft or child abuse, there is usually no problem with the school district. But if that student wants to write a term paper on Jesus, there may be opposition. 
If the valedictorian of a high school class wants to include her own prayer or statement of faith in her valedictory address, she is likely to encounter opposition from the school. Even though the Constitution guarantees to her the free exercise of religion. Now, it's tempting for us at Mount Horeb to ignore the cultural attacks on our faith because, after all, we're part of a vibrant, growing, healthy, wonderful church. But we have a responsibility as American Christians to monitor the spiritual health of our beloved nation and to be bold enough to stand up for our faith. We should do everything in our power to peacefully protest against any attempt to restrict freedom, especially the freedom of religion. Jesus said, if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's wonderfully patriotic to wave the American flag. It's wonderfully patriotic to put your hand over your heart and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. But our most patriotic deed is to repent of our sin and America's sin. Nothing touches the heart of God more powerfully than a repentant people. Now, we've looked at our responsibility for national revival. Now let's turn to God's response. And in our scripture lesson for the morning, God promises that if we fulfill our responsibility, that he will hear from heaven and will forgive our sin and will heal our land. God's promise found fulfillment when he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, our sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west or the north from the south. America's major problem is her sin. And there's no better message for us sinners than this word from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. In addition to forgiving us, God promises to heal our land. Only God can do that. No president can do that. No political party can do that. Only God can do that. Only God can teach a majority of Americans to treasure every single little unborn baby because the Bible says that everyone is a work of God in progress. God can teach Republicans and Democrats how to disagree without being disagreeable. We must learn to say, in the words of that great French philosopher, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. God can teach liberals and conservatives to eliminate hate speech. God can help America defeat Islamic terrorism without hating terrorists. God can inspire the churches to reach out to women with unwanted pregnancies, offering love and financial resources and adoption services. God can even show 
Christians how to deal with our American opponents, the secularists, because they're going to continue to accuse us of everything under heaven. They're going to call us old-fashioned and narrow-minded, hateful, homophobic. But instead of retaliating, we must learn to return blessing for insult. God can teach us to emulate Martin Luther King Jr. who said, let no man pull you down so low as to make you hate him. When God helps us develop a firm but winsome spirit, America will experience healing. In closing, let me share an historical fact about America that even some of you history majors may not know. In the very depths of the American Revolutionary War, 1777-1778, when George Washington's tattered little army was about to freeze to death in Valley Forge, the British were on the verge of capturing our capital, Philadelphia. Our precious Liberty Bell was in Philadelphia. So some patriots took the Liberty Bell to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and it was hidden beneath the floorboards of the Zion Reformed Church. And then a year and a half later, when Philadelphia was liberated from the British, the Liberty Bell was brought back to the city of brotherly love. I see a powerful symbolic meaning in that historical episode. In every century, the church is the best custodian of what the Liberty Bell represents. And what does it represent? One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Freedom's best friend is the Bible-believing, Spirit-filled Church of Jesus Christ. And so, let us repeat out loud God's recipe for revival. Say it with me. If my people who are called by my name <coughs> will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If God wants to ignite a revival in America, when would it happen? Where would it begin? In which group of believers would it be launched? Here is my question and challenge. Why not here? Why not now? Why not us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.